take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew today, beginning in chapter 16, as we talk about spiritual discernment and God's call for us to be spiritually discerning people. We've had a rough week this week in our community from Asheville all the way to Jacksonville, and a number of our people have been greatly affected. Uh, our heart as a faith family goes out to our community and to many of our members who lost a good bit this week. Our prayers are still with you and our hands are still to the task of helping you. And we'd like to do that more. If you have some need, if you have some area where you just need some folks to come and help you, we'd love to work side by side with you. You can go online and find more information or Send a quick email to our missions pastor, his name is Mike, mike at mbchurch.com. Let us know how we might serve you as your faith family, and we'll just connect with you and continue to do that until the job is done. I'm reminded that we live in a broken world. Uh, tornadoes were not the creation of God. They were the curse of creation that has been so affected by sin, the sin of mankind. In fact, every calamity in the world is part of that fractured creation that sin brought to the creation that was perfect in God. Certainly not the rhythm and the harmony that God had established in the beginning. But Jesus Christ is a reconciler and he is bringing reconciliation to all things. One day there will be a new earth and it will be without the touch of sin and there will be no lightning, there will be no catastrophic conditions like hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, and the like. There will be no sin and death, and the reconciliation will be complete. Until that time, we're pressing in to the strength of Christ to get through difficult days like this. And what we're alerted to is we're just in the beginning of this season. So may the Lord be gracious to us, and, and may He shine upon us. I'm celebrating the fact that the body of Christ has done so well in engaging the community and thankful to Mike and uh, many others, Matt and others who have helped lead us in that way to touch our community. So now in the 16th chapter of Matthew, beginning in verse one, let's read God's word together. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them. When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be a stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. The evil and an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves? For the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak to you about bread? 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So here's two groups of people trying to trap Jesus in an answer to a question or a challenge that they present. They're looking for a way to bring some kind of accusation against him, framing up words and that they will use against him. But of course, the Lord is way too wise and way too discerning to fall for their trap. He ignores it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were normally enemies. They were not in cahoots together most of the time. But when it came to the possibility of ridding their lives of Jesus Christ, they determined to lock arms together. Jesus, understanding this, recognized that their words or their challenge was a trap. Show us a sign from heaven, they said. In other words, make the sun stand still. Turn the moon to blood. Make a star fall from the sky. But Jesus was not going to do such a sign. He had been giving many signs, many miracles, and many wonders in their presence. In fact, if you've been following along in the readings of, this, of uh, Scripture that Meadowbrook has as our daily reading plan, you've been engaged in the readings of the Gospels, and you've seen miracle after miracle that Christ had been demonstrating. He healed vast numbers of people, healing the sick and giving sight to the blind, making the lame to walk and the mute to suddenly be able to speak, the deaf to hear, those who were demon-possessed, released and freed. We've read about him turning water into wine, we've read about him walking on water, and we've read about him stealing the storm on the water. We've read a lot of things that Jesus has been doing and accomplishing. In fact, there's not a single need for a miracle that was not done because Jesus didn't have the power to do it. There is no power that supersedes him. In fact, he supersedes all powers. And we've been reading about that and all that has been going on before the eyes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Jesus is saying to them, no more, no more signs, no more miracles. In fact, he didn't do another in their presence. In fact, did not speak to them again in their presence until his arrest and their mock trial. What is Jesus doing here? Why is he pulling back? Why is he saying that he's not going to show them a sign? He says there'll be one sign that he will show them, and it's the sign of Jonah. It speaks about his resurrection. That'll be the only sign that they will get from him. Now, if you remember, the Sadducees are Jewish men who have colluded with the Romans. Boy, does that word ever come loaded today, doesn't it? <laughs> They've colluded with the Romans. Uh, what that means is they have tried to make life better for them. And they've tried to sway people to the way of the Romans who were occupiers of the land. And they did this because they knew that the Romans could actually put them in positions of power and prestige and make them very wealthy. So if you will, they've sold out so that they might have their own gain. Those are the kind of men who are the Sadducees. The Pharisees would rarely have anything to do with them, and certainly this would not be the case if they were not coming together in order to provoke Jesus. The Sadducees were those Jewish men who had given favor to the Romans in order for the Romans to give favor to them. The Pharisees were different. They were loyalists. 
They place tradition and ritual, though, above the Word of God. We talked about that last week. That Jesus pointed that out, that their traditions, they elevated to be greater than that of Scripture. They didn't believe in signs. Well, excuse me, they did believe in signs. They just didn't believe that Jesus could do the signs. In fact, what they believed is that Satan himself was behind the miraculous works through Jesus Christ. They charged him with that. But Jesus was speaking the opposite of the Sadducees. He was speaking the opposite of the Pharisees, and that brought great tension. They saw the power, the position, and the wealth potentially going away, so they wanted to get rid of Jesus. So they call out to him, show us a sign. But he's thinking, I've been showing you signs for the last number of months, and you've not seen them yet. Which brings me to the first point. In our natural state, we are inept to see spiritual realities. We just don't have the capacity to do that. Natural senses are inept to discern spiritual realities. You are not going to be able to see the things that God is doing when you're only seeing with your eyes, your optic nerve, and with your brain. Last weekend, the weather forecasters were pretty alarmed about, about what was potentially going to transpire. I had not been paying attention. Kay and I rarely watched the news, so we didn't really know what was going on. We sort of read headlines and dig in if we need to dig in based on cultural stuff. But I was walking into one of the services, and one of the outside greeters said, hey, did you hear that uh, Span is saying we might have some tornadoes? I'm like, no, I didn't hear that. Thanks for putting it on, on my mind. And so we were then watching. And sure enough, they said that atmospheric conditions made it moderately probable that we could have a tornado. And by Monday afternoon, we saw that developing. By Monday evening, they were very much underway. By Tuesday morning, they were done. The damage was pretty significant. If you traveled all the way into St. Clair County, around the Asheville area, and gone all the way back up towards Jacksonville, you'll see the significance of all that damage. What was helpful to us, number one, is the grace of God. Number two, that the weather forecasters, the meteorologists, got this one right. So we were all sort of alert. We're pretty good at that, aren't we? I mean, yeah, they're going to miss it every now and then. You get wet when you didn't prepare because they didn't tell you to prepare. But most of the time, they get it right. Jesus is saying the same thing in the first century. Most time, you guys can get it right. You look at the sky in the morning, you say, oh, it's going to be okay today. Or you look at the sky in the evening, you say, oh, it looks pretty angry today. We're going to have some rain, some potential for some violent weather. How is it that you can predict the weather and you cannot see the signs of the times? You know why? Because you can predict the weather in the natural, but you can't see the spiritual with the natural. And Jesus is drawing that to their attention, that they're missing things. The people in, in Jesus' public ministry, around his public ministry, were seeing all kinds of things. In fact, you and I sort of scratch our head when we're reading it from, from our vantage point, looking back, we're saying, how did you miss this? How do the disciples start wrangling about having a loaf of bread and wondering if it's enough for 13 people? Good grief, you're with the man who can feed thousands with just a few pieces of bread and fish. We sort of scratch our head when he does miracles in front of people, like raise up a little girl or call Lazarus out of the tomb and then say something like he's the resurrection and life and people won't believe. 
But maybe, maybe there's some stuff going on around us that God is doing for which you and I don't see and know either. Maybe he's saying, Randy, I'm doing all these things right in your presence, in your midst. I'm, I'm working in that person's life, in that person's life, and, and you're not attentive to that. You're not discerning that. You're not open to that truth. I mean, that's exactly what's going on. So how do we become spiritually discerners? Two people that come to mind as I was thinking about this message from the first century are Simeon and Anna. Uh, they're unrelated people, but they're locked into Scripture about the same location. It's the 40th day, the day of purification for Mary. It was required by law that she, Joseph, would give a sacrifice for her purification after having a baby. And so they present themselves in the sacrifice there in Jerusalem, and they find themselves in the temple. And there Simeon is, and Anna as well. Anna pretty much stays there. She's an 84-year-old widow, been widowed most of her adult life, and she's just hanging out in, in the place where the presence of God is, worshiping and praising and talking to people. And I want to dive into them a little bit and see how you and I might learn some of the patterns of people who are spiritually discerning. Here's two people that stand out among all those who are on the Temple Mount. All those in Jerusalem, these two people stand out as people who are spiritually insightful, discerners. Simeon first. Look what the scripture says about him. I want to just read it with you. And as if I were studying the Bible with pencil in my hand, uh, this is the way I would mark it. Simeon was a man who was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Well, obviously, there's four things that kind of leap out to us as we read that and the first is this these two he was righteous and devout now how does one come to a place of righteousness how does one walk with righteous righteousness well it's not by his own actions or her own actions it's by a gift that even if i were to attempt to be righteous what i would do in righteous deeds is filthy before the holy righteous god of the universe so righteousness is a gift. Righteousness comes to us by Christ. He says, and this is what we're celebrating this week in Holy Week, moving towards Good Friday and then the Resurrection Sunday. This is what he's doing. He's saying, Randy, let me take away your unrighteousness. I'll put it on me on the cross, and I will die with God's justice being poured out against me, and then I will give to you my righteousness. That's the hope of the gospel. It's not that you're going to suddenly get your life right, but that you would suddenly surrender to what Christ has already done and willing to give you. Now, that is all by faith. You and I are on this side of the cross looking back and saying, that's what Jesus accomplished. We're looking back to the resurrection and saying, the newness of life is given to me in the resurrection of Christ. Now, Simeon, if this is the cross and the resurrection, Simeon's right here. And he still is filled with hope that the Messiah would come and he would make him righteous. So his faith, like Abraham's faith of the past, is given to him because, uh, excuse me, his righteousness is given to him because of his faith. So whether you're on this side of the cross or that side of the cross, they both move towards the faith that the Messiah would come or the Messiah has come and provide for us righteousness. So he's a man of righteousness because he's a man of faith. 
And because he recognizes that righteousness is going to be gifted to him by the Messiah, by the redeeming one, he is fully devoted to Christ. So when we read that Simeon was righteous and devout, that's a big deal. So if you and I want to engage spiritually, we want to have spiritual truth and spiritual sight and discernment, we need to bank on the righteousness that is available with Jesus Christ and to yield our life in total devotion to him. Simeon did that. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That is, he's waiting for the Messiah to come to redeem Israel. You and I are waiting as well. Sure, you have righteousness in Christ by faith. Sure, you might be a devoted follower of Christ, but your devotion is not just right here. Your devotion is moving towards something. What is that? It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the reason why 1 Corinthians 11 says when we're partaking in the communion, it's not just a remembrance of what has done, but until the Lord returns again. So our righteousness is settled in Christ, our devotion is given to Him, sustained by His Spirit, and we're looking with anticipation for His coming again where we will stand before Him and and give all those things that we've done for His glory unto Him. And Simeon was with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Now remember, this is before Pentecost, so the Holy Spirit was upon him. Since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes in us and He dwells within us. So we're really in a great position, even better than Simeon, to be spiritually discerning, to see what God is doing, even when the Son of God comes in the presence, His presence. He's righteous, He's devout, He's waiting on the Christ to come, and He has the Holy Spirit upon Him. So might you and me be as well. Anna. Anna is one of those people that's hanging out in the temple constantly. She is worshiping and fasting in prayer, night and day. Now, it's one thing for us to worship corporately, and I loved our corporate worship we had. It's another thing to worship with great prayer and fasting. If you want to be spiritually discerning, you want to know truth and engage truth and see truth and see what's not truth, then you need to be a worshiper. And you need to be a worshiper who engages in deep prayer and fasting. We ought to regularly be people who fast. To say, God, there is nothing in this world that is greater than my hunger and my attention towards you. Nothing greater than my worship for you. I even do away with the basics of life, food, in order to focus on you. Anna was that person. She was spiritually alert and discerning because she's a worshiper. She's praying and fasting. And she, in that very moment, at that hour, sees and begins to give God thanks because Jesus has come in. Mary and Joseph bring Jesus Christ into the temple, and he's just a matter of weeks old, and she recognizes who he is, and she begins to speak of, to all those people of him according to the redemption of Christ. They've been waiting for it, and she begins telling them, hey, he's here. So we get a little bit of alert to if we're going to be spiritual discerners, we ought to be worshipful, prayerful, fasting, engaging in the disciplines of the faith, be in the place where the presence of God is, and to speak to others about his great movement. Speak to others about what God is doing. Can I just say, you are not going to be very spiritually discerning while you're watching reruns of Friends. It's not going to happen. 
But when you're engaged in worship and prayer and fasting and you're talking to others who are waiting for the coming of the Savior again, you have a greater potential to be a spiritual, discerning individual. Engage in the way of the Spirit. That's what Simeon and Anna are doing. They're seeking after the things of God. So you don't have that in the natural. You're going to have to seek that in the spiritual by the Spirit of God who gives that to you. So we should be people who discern the times. As well as we can discern the weather, we ought to be discerning what God is doing around us. We should be very careful to not seek a sign as we want it to be. God, do this. God, do that. No, that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing. Just with eyes open, spiritual, engaged life, watch what God is doing and you will see Him do great signs and wonders. Case in point, yesterday, the day before, and the day before, all the way back to Monday evening, we have seen the miraculous sign of God since the destruction came into this community. What are you talking about? Listen, God is not going to write his name in the sky. That's not how he's going to declare himself. You know how he chooses to declare himself today? Through his word and through his church, who are called his body. So I'm grateful we live in a civilized society where we pay first responders and they do their job well. In fact, they were the first groups in. Almost immediately, they were showing up, helping people, finding out if there was somebody in need. As we went the next day and began to go into the communities, the police officers were stopping us along the way, making sure we were who we say we are and were there for what we said we were there for. I'm grateful for those first responders. Our life is better because of them. But I'll tell you who the unsung heroes are. They might be unsung today. They're going to be sung about in the future, no doubt. The unsung heroes are the body of Jesus Christ, who were also going in on that very night of the tornado. And they have a prayer on their lips, and they have a chainsaw in their hand. And they say, I'll be back in the morning. And they come with just not one or two. They come with an army of people that go side by side with people they love and people they don't even know. And they do it in the name of Jesus. You know what's happening there? God is revealing his love at the place where people need it revealed, at the place of their need. It's a sign that only those with spiritual eyes to see can see that. See, everybody else is just good people doing good things. But I see Jesus. And we live in the last days. Now, for some of you who are alarmists, I'm not saying that Jesus is coming back today, although he is very capable of doing that. Could be this afternoon, could be before I finish this message, and who knows how long that'll be. <laughs> but at any rate, we live in what the Bible calls the last days, and the last days is defined as the point in time where Jesus was ministering on earth to the point in time when he returns again. That's a pretty big stretch of time. And in the last days, he tells us that he is giving us great signs. Now, one of the signs is the completed work of Jesus Christ. There is no greater sign on earth than the completed work of Jesus Christ, who lived his life perfectly as God prescribes people to live it, and died his life wonderfully as Christ did it as a substitution for us, and was put in that ground, and then on the third day, resurrected to glorious life. The historicity and the proof of that taking place really cannot be argued. It's the greatest sign of all. 
So when Jesus says, I'll show you a sign, but it'll be the sign of Jonah, he's talking about a man who was dead in the belly of a fish that got spit out on the shoreline and began to do the work of the Father. That's what Jesus has done. He's been put into that ground, and on the third day, he resurrected to continue to do the work of the Father, not just at the right hand of the Father, but through you and me. There is no greater sign than the completed work of Jesus Christ. It's a miracle. But only people who are given spiritual sight can see it. You remember the day when you were given spiritual sight? Where you suddenly saw your lostness? Where you suddenly saw your brokenness and sin? And God gave you that sight? And he gave you at the same moment the opportunity to know his son as the savior, the redeemer, the one who could take care of it all. He gave you enough sight to call out to him for mercy. And he gave it. Do you remember that? That's the working of God to give you sight. Now that work continues today. The completed work of Christ. Another is the great work of the Bible. You know, the Holy Spirit of God has inspired men to write the Bible over a 1,500-year period. And man, does it ever come together, 15 centuries coming together in a seamless order, in a beautiful way. And that book has been read and studied and tried to be picked apart and torn apart, but it stands. It stands. It's been scrutinized more than any other book in the world, but yet it still stands. It's the most read and the most bought book in the history of time. Why? Because it's the miracle of God, the very word of God that has been given to us. You say, Randy, how are you so confident in that word? Because that word transformed me and I've seen it transform hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of other people. The glory of the miracle of the Bible. And it's a great miraculous movement in the Bible as well. It's the prophecy of the Bible. Did you know there are 1,817 verses related to prophecy in the Bible? It's nearly a quarter of the Bible in prophecy. And as time has marched on, those prophecies, many hundreds of them, have been accomplished and fulfilled exactly as they were stated to be hundreds of years before. Some of those are actually being fulfilled in our lifetime. As you look back over history, you can see all the prophecies being fulfilled, but you will not find a single point in time that you can say, oh, 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 God, you missed one there. In every one of them, perfection. It's a miracle. People who are textual critics say that it's an impossibility that that could be, except that the sovereign God of the universe would bring it about. It's a sign. But you have to have spiritual sight in order to see it. The natural condition of the heart, the human heart, makes people spiritually blind. You wonder why people can't see it? Because the condition of their heart makes them blind. In fact, God says it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. 
mankind's heart is so deceitful and so sick with wickedness that people are blinded by it, unable to see and understand things. And unless God intervenes in their life, they will remain in that place. There will not be enough signs ever to make them convinced. There will not be enough answers to their questions that they ask over and over. There is not going to be enough people that will testify. If God doesn't intervene, their heart is just going to make them spiritually blind. But bless God he intervened. Bless God that he sent his son Jesus. Bless God that he has given us his Holy Spirit who enables us to see and understand our plight without him. God gives this great irrefutable sign from heaven which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is doing so because he's breaking into our broken world to bring us to sight, to bring us to wholeness. That leads me to this last section. So for those people who have been given sight and have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, he warns them, watch and beware. Now Jesus has departed the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's gotten in a boat with his disciples. They've gone over the northern portion of the Galilean lake. And it's there that they've recognized, the disciples have, have that they've not brought enough food. They only have one loaf of bread. And even though Jesus has twice multiplied such bread to the thousands, it just doesn't dawn on them that he could accomplish that then and there. So he says to them in a moment of opportunity, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now there, the disciples are thinking this is a rebuke. Somebody should have done that. Somebody should have gotten the bread. Who was responsible for getting the bread? They sense that Jesus is calling them out, but he's not doing that at all. Jesus is not worried about the bread. Listen, Jesus has already promised us that we will have food to eat and clothes to wear. You don't have to worry about that one. He's got that one. The disciples were worried about that. Jesus is talking about leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he's using it as a great opportunity to elevate some truth. So he says to them, it's not about your bread. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the spiritual consequence of you letting their leaven come into you. Now, when we think of leaven, we're mostly thinking about yeast rolls and cakes. <laughs> Both of those things are pretty doggone good, aren't they? But you know what happens if you take a lump of dough and you infuse it with leaven the process, the biological process of that living thing begins to ferment that dough. And that's where we take it and make something good out of it. But if you leave that, it's just a matter of time that that leaven is going to rot and putrefy that dough. So he's saying, don't let the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees come into your soul. It will permeate you. Their false teaching, their false uh, beliefs will permeate you. Don't mess around with that. Watch and beware of them. Now, what is this? What is this leaven? Well, the Sadducees, as you know, uh, they're really liberal. They've determined that the 39 books that we have in the Old Testament, only five of them are real. They're discounting 34 of them. All the words of the prophets, all the words of wisdom, all that's gone. They just believe in the first five books. 
So they're the kind of people that take away from God's word. They, they only want God's word to be what they understand and know. They discount everything else. And they're rationalists. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe that kind of stuff. They're the liberals that we have today. They discount. I remember being in college. I was in a Bible class, and my professor, who is like the Sadducees, was discounting most of the narratives of the Old Testament, saying that they really didn't happen. And so, you know, I'm thinking, like, you mean even the ones that Jesus spoke about himself? When you start taking something out, where are you going to stop that? Listen, I believe it all the way through, from mine where it says imitation leather all the way to the very back. I believe every part of it. I don't discount any part of that. That's ridiculous. Who am I to discount the Word of God? Man, this is sola scriptura to me. It is the authority of my life. Every measure of my life gets read through this. And that's where the blessings of life come. But the Sadducees weren't like that. They were different from that. They were, were discounters, people who remove sections of God's Word. You've got to be careful about them. To remind you that there are people that are doing that really prolifically today, all in the name of tolerance. They deny what the Bible clearly states. They ignore what it boldly proclaims, and they scoff at what God's law is, claiming it, although it's timeless, claiming it to be antique, not relevant for today. Now, the way that presents mostly in our circles would be millionaire preachers or millionaire wannabes who write their books and proclaim their messages of love, grace, and all those things that they want, like prosperity and health. And then they never, ever talk about Jesus' words of denying self, taking up the cross, and following Him. Those are people that discount the very words of God. And you know what Jesus is saying to us? Watch and beware. Don't let that leaven into your soul. But it's not just them, it's the people like the Pharisees as well. They're not taking away from God's word, they're adding to it. They're taking their traditions and their rituals and imposing them as if they're the word of God. They're as spiritually blind as those Sadducees are spiritually blind. They're telling people this is God's requirement for you when God never required that at all. And the way that might get framed up today could be in multiple ways like ritual cleansings for them, which God never prescribed for the people. The Pharisees said, oh, you got to follow this practice in this way, and if you don't do it, you're a lawbreaker. For us, it might be something like this. Somebody will take a symbol that God has given, such as baptism, and make it something physical and mandate it. Baptism, as you and I clearly know from God's Word, the Bible, pictures outwardly what has already transpired inwardly it is the working out it is the expression of the demonstration of this great saving faith of one who has been immersed into christ on the cross and immersed in his resurrection so they might walk in newness of life he's going to baptize somebody in the 930 service that baptism had nothing to do with at any point his salvation happening today the salvation took place three years ago when he surrendered his life to Christ. 
He just never followed through with baptism. So he said, no longer will I be disobedient to the things of God. If he genuinely is my Lord, then I'm going to follow him and what he commanded me to do to be baptized. So he was baptized today. It's a symbol. But others would say, no, no, no. Baptism is the mode of salvation. In fact, if you're not baptized, you're not saved. Let me just say outright, Jesus never said that. I'm going with Jesus. Or maybe with communion. You and I know that to be a symbol. It's Jesus in the middle of a meal taking up some bread and giving an illustration about it, taking up the cup and giving an illustration about it so that some great spiritual truths could be understood more deeply and practically. And he says, hey, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. It's all symbolic, but some people say, no, no, no. Transubstantiation, Randy, that's what you need to believe in. The molecular structure of the, of the bread and the juice changes. When you put that in your mouth, that becomes the body of, of Christ. And when you drink that, that becomes the blood of Christ. And that's the mode of salvation. You're, you're not saved if you don't do that. Can I just tell you outright, Jesus never said that. And I'm going with Jesus. But now, unless we stand up here and point our fingers at everybody else, let's just say, the Baptist tradition has its ways too. We'll take the word of God and we'll start pointing out other things that we think are important that God didn't say. You can't drink this, you can't do this, you can't go there, and you can't do that. And we lift them as if they are the scripture to us. They are not. So Jesus says, watch, beware. Don't fall for that. Have spiritual discernment about you. So how do we become spiritually discerners? I'm going to wrap it up with these seven points. If you're going to walk with spiritual discernment, I think this is a good way to practice. Number one, understand that spiritual sight and wisdom is a gift from God. So this isn't something you're going to earn, you're not going to achieve, you're not going to work towards it. It's a gift. That's the way it started with our salvation, that God gave us sight to our plight, to our condition, and God gave us that sight and gave us understanding, and we called out to him for rescue. And that sight continues today. So whereas spiritual sight and wisdom is a gift from God, spiritual blindness is the work of Satan. Second, read the Bible. It will discern the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. You've got to be Bible readers. I'm not talking about devotional readers. Listen. If you're a devotional reader and you think that's the Word of God, man, are you sorely mistaken. Well, I've seen people have their devotions in their bathroom. They sit down and read their devotion and think they've had some time with God. Are you kidding me? That writer is not going to give you spiritual discernment. And in that place is not where you get spiritual discernment. It's in your closet. It's in your living room. It's in your kitchen table. It's on your back porch where you've got the word of God open. And you're saying, Lord, if you don't reveal my heart to me by this word, if you don't let it fall like a plumb line in my life, show me where I'm off. I won't know it. Give me sight. And when Kay and I read God's word every day, it reveals things to us constantly. Because he's given a spiritual sight. And I'm encouraging you to be in God's word. If you're going to be a spiritual sighted person, good discerning, you got to be in God's word. And don't just read it, study it. That's the third point. Study it. It's wisdom from heaven that will make you wise. 
Study it with a pencil in your hand. Write down the things that the Holy Spirit is telling you. Engage it. Go deep into it. And you will have wisdom from heaven. Number four, pray and seek spiritual discernment from the Holy Spirit. Ask Him for it. It's one of the most prominent prayers that I pray as a leader. God, please, I need wisdom. Almost every time I sit down to write a lesson or a message, it's, oh, God, please, I need wisdom here. I don't get this. I don't understand. What do you want me to say to the people? Only you know their hearts and minds. God, please, I pray for wisdom. I'm praying that constantly. You know, that's one of those prayers that God said, Randy, if you'll pray for it, or Meadowbrook, if you'll pray for it, I will give it to you liberally. So seek the Holy Spirit that you might see truth, have discernment with great wisdom, Hate what is wrong and hold tightly to what is good. Now, if you're going to be spiritually discerning, you're going to have to come in alignment with God. And you're going to begin to hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves. So, Lord, let me see as you see. And as I see as you see, I'm going to love the things that you love and I'm going to hate the sin that you hate. I didn't say anything about hating people. God doesn't hate people. God loves people. But he hates sin because it distances people from him and it rejects his word it's a rebellious nature he hates that so choose up front to hate the things of sin and love and hold tightly the things that are good if i were going to reframe that it would be like this don't play around with sin and don't dilly dally with righteousness don't play around with sin and don't just kind of play around with this thing called righteousness. Go wholeheartedly into one or the other. Isn't that what Jesus says? I want you to be hot or cold. I don't want you to be in the between. So forsake that sin and press towards what is righteousness. Number six, purpose to walk righteously as you discern spiritually. So as God is opening your understanding, you're spiritually seeing and understanding those things, then walk in those things. Exercise in that walk in that righteousness it would be ridiculous for him to give a sight spiritual sight and us reject it or quench his givenness to us by choosing not to do it so lord the answer is yes whatever you show me i'm going to do that's the that's the response that we ought to have and then number seven train and practice discernment by being intentionally engaged in mind and spirit this doesn't just haphazardly come about it's god i am training and i'm practicing discernment i'm going to be intentionally engaged in mind and soul i'm all into this i'm not playing around with the things of the world i'm engaged in you so meadowbrook i'm asking that we would be spiritually discerning people and be watchful and beware of the leaven that might permeate into our souls. And if we'll be spiritually discerning, we'll see where God is at work and we'll ask for the opportunity to join Him with great intentionality for the glory of Jesus. Now, Father, as we have focused the last 40 minutes on Your Word, we pray that You have helped root it down into us that it might bear forth life and glorious fruit in the days ahead. Began a work in us, Lord, I pray. For the one who is blinded because of the natural state of man, I pray, please, God, give spiritual sight. By your grace, give spiritual sight to the one who is without you, 
no relationship with you. The faith has not been applied. Oh, please, God, give spiritual sight to their condition. And as they see, Lord, may they call out to you for mercy and come to resurrected life, newness of life in Jesus. I pray in doing so, they would forsake themselves, deny themselves, take up the cross of Jesus and follow him. And I pray that that would bring great honor to him today as another soul submits to him for the rest of the days of this earth and to live with him all the days of eternity. Oh God, please, I pray that that would be the case. In the name of Jesus, amen. We're going to sing.